Number 5. Three Cosmic Messages, Second Quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome to Pino today. And before we begin Lesson 5, The Good News of the Judgment, Alan Varner, who is here with us this morning, wants to pass along some news to us, and then he will offer the prayer. We now have the electronic versions of the Conversations About God book up on the web. So if you want to find it, you actually go to the same conversations page where we had the audio for the longest time. If you go to pkp.cc and then slash CAG for conversations about God, pkp.cc slash CAG, you have the two electronic versions. One is an EPUB version, which works with Kindle and with books and other ones, so Apple Books. And then there's a PDF version, which will work directly on your computer. You need the free Adobe Acrobat Reader. Very good. Thank you, Helen. Well, let's go ahead and pray together too. Heavenly Father, in a world that has more knowledge than ever, but not more wisdom, where we are encouraged to react quickly and with a mob, we are thankful for you, a God who invites us to slow down and reason together with you. Please have your spirit lead this discussion, giving us your wisdom and your charity toward others. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a series on the three angels' messages, and as most are probably aware, those are found in Revelation 14 and verses 6 through 12, and it's a whole quarter of 13 lessons focusing on these seven verses. It is an intense, a deep dive in some verses that seem to be extremely important to the message of the book of Revelation. And we will continue working with those here uh, during this session and ones that are beyond. But to begin, let's go back to Revelation 14 and verse 7 and refresh ourselves on the verse from which our study is drawn today. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. All right, so here you have a message to the world in the very final period of earth's history, according to the context of Revelation. And this message is to invite people to do three things. They're to fear God, they're to give glory to him, and they're to worship the one who made heaven and earth, and so forth. So you have fear God, give him glory, worship him, is basically the call that this angel provides. The context, however, is this phrase, the hour of his judgment has come. And in the Greek, it's a subordinate clause of purpose that the hour of his judgment has come. Therefore, this is the kind of person that you ought to be. So it's setting the context in which the call of the angel is relevant to fear God, to give him glory, and to worship him as creator. So the lesson, the moment it touches on judgment, says the following. The angel of Revelation 14.7 announces that the hour of his judgment has come, and the book of Daniel gives us the time when this judgment begins. Now, the Daniel part in particular, we will focus on next time in the sixth of this series of lessons. Today, we will focus on parts of Daniel, but also the larger picture of judgment in Scripture. So, according to the lesson, you find the timing of judgment in Daniel 8.14. 
And I invite you to go there at this point, Daniel 8, 14. And he answered him, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. All right, so this seems really, really important within the context of the book of Daniel. There'll be 2,300 evenings and mornings, and at the end of that period of time, the sanctuary will be restored. Now, what does it mean, the sanctuary? At the time that Daniel was written, there was a sanctuary that had been destroyed. It was the sanctuary in Jerusalem. It was an earthly temple. And he says, at the end of 2,300 days, then the sanctuary will be cleansed. So many scholars come to this and they say, well, clearly Daniel is anticipating that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt in roughly six and a half years or so, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Or some might suggest that it's actually 1,150 days because you cut the 2,300 in half evenings and mornings. So the first question is, is Daniel talking about his immediate future here? And that's logical for scholars to do because most prophecy speaks to the immediate situation and sees the end of time as kind of a natural extension of the world as they're experiencing it. But let's go to Daniel 8 and verses 26 and 27 and see if that will steer us in a different direction. Daniel 8, 26 and 27. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. As for you, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was dismayed by the vision and did not understand it. All right, so we're just skipping into Daniel here a little bit. But Daniel receives a vision that lays out a number of future events, climaxing with this cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, the question is, does Daniel see that as three and a half or six and a half years, taking a literal view of the time period here? What does the angel say to him? Seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future, for it is a long time. And how does Daniel react? It says there that he was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Not good news. It's unfinished business. The angel was going to explain more about this prophecy, but Daniel can't handle it at that time. So it's unfinished business. But what did Daniel clearly come to understand? This prophecy isn't about three years from now. It's not about six years from now. It's not about something in my lifetime. It's for a far distant future. And for Daniel, that must have been a crushing disappointment. So the question then becomes, if this is 2,300 years, shall we say, as Adventists generally interpret it, that would take us all the way into the fairly recent past. What sanctuary could Daniel possibly be talking about? If at the end of 2,300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed, what sanctuary could it be? What options do we have in Scripture? For a sanctuary in the fairly recent past, how would you interpret sanctuary today in the light of Scripture? What does sanctuary and temple mean in New Testament terms, I guess is another way to put the question. All right, Lou? Would it be any place that God dwells? Any place that God dwells. Okay, I think that's a very helpful starting point. In the New Testament, actually, 
the sanctuary is Jesus. You have Jesus saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And clearly, he's not talking about the temple because John says right after that, Jesus meant the temple of his body. So Jesus, his person, is the temple, is the sanctuary. But in the New Testament, sanctuary is, as Lou pointed out, wherever Jesus is or wherever God is. So I think that's a good starting point for answering the question. Bob? To Daniel, would it have meant the temple would be rebuilt and that then it would be cleansed? Or did he already have a view that the temple would no longer be relevant? Mm. So here you have an interesting piece of it. The word here in the Hebrew is not cleanse as such. It's not the usual Hebrew word for cleanse. It's actually the word for righteousness. And it's a passive. So unto 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be made righteous. What does that mean? You know, it doesn't exactly answer your question, does it, Bob? Interestingly enough, the Greek Old Testament, when it comes to this passage, translates as cleansed. And that's how it got into the King James Bible. Unto 2,300 days, the sanctuary will be cleansed. But the Hebrew is actually the sanctuary will be set right or as some translations have it, restored to its rightful place. Now, if we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilding of that temple would be an obvious answer to that. But we're talking about something way over in New Testament times, something that ended just not that long ago. So what are the options for temple in the New Testament situation? Anyone have thoughts on that from your previous study? Well, if the sanctuary is wherever Jesus is, where is he? Lou? After his resurrection, he said, I must go so I can send the comforter. So now the Holy Spirit brings God, Jesus, into our hearts and our lives. And we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit if we are connected and allow him to fill our hearts and our lives. Okay. So, Lou, you are saying that wherever Jesus is, well, if he's present in us through the Holy Spirit, then there's a sanctuary. Our bodies, our persons could be described as sanctuary. Is that the only place Jesus is? What kind of sanctuary is the book of Hebrews all about? doesn't say much about the body. Just preceding the faith chapter of 11, chapters 8 through 10, Hebrews is saying there is a sanctuary in heaven, and the sanctuary is modeled to some degree on the one on earth, and it has a whole bunch of stuff going on in there. So where is Jesus today? He's at the right hand of God. He's in the heavenly sanctuary. So that is also a possible fulfillment of this text. A third option in the New Testament is the church. Jesus says, where two or three gather together in my name, there I am in the midst. And that's almost a quotation of a rabbinical saying, where two or three get together to study the Torah, the Shekinah glory is in their midst. In other words, the gathering of students of the Bible is a sanctuary, is a temple. And God's Shekinah glory is in the midst of that temple just as much as it was back in Jerusalem in the old days. So the New Testament interprets the Old Testament sanctuary in three ways. There's a sanctuary in heaven. There's a sanctuary of the church. Jesus is present whenever two or three gather together. And there's the sanctuary of the body, that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus can dwell in each of us. 
So when we read a text like Daniel 8.14 and a text like Revelation 14.7, we want to keep in mind that there are expanded possibilities beyond simply a building in the Middle East. Something much bigger than that is probably in view here, because we're not talking about Daniel's day. We're talking about something way down in the course of history. Aaron? I think it behooves us to not discount the sanctuary in heaven as, oh yeah, a building in heaven. What could that have to do with us? Well, it could have a lot to do with us. Maybe not so much the building as, what is Jesus doing there? Very, very interesting observation, Aaron. Uh, so you're, you're suggesting there's really not as big a difference between these three as we might at first make of it. That if we are to be in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, then to some degree what happens to our body and minds is connected to what is happening way up there. I like that observation. Seventh-day Adventists have had three approaches to the Old Testament sanctuary. One is that the Old Testament sanctuary represents a heavenly building, you know, two apartments, everything just like we have today. A second view is the heavenly sanctuary represents things that God is doing in our hearts. And I think we've talked to quite a bit of that here. The third view is that the earthly sanctuary represents heavenly realities, heavenly realities. It's not a building as such, but it's something bigger than that. And I think that's sort of the primary thing here, in my view. Not so much a heavenly building, which can get very confusing when you try to map that out in history, but that the earthly sanctuary represents what God is doing in heavenly places that affects all of us. All right, I see Henry here and then Livius. Just following with your last statement about being something bigger, I think that sometimes we human beings get preoccupied on the location, on the structure, on something physical. And it's evident that if the sanctuary was introduced for a purpose, not necessarily to have a dwelling place, but to symbolize that relationship because God was already with them and they are the ones that need to make sure that he is with them. So he asked them to build a sanctuary, a structure that needed to be mobile so they will feel that he is actually traveling with them. But God was with Adam and Eve. And according to some scholars, the Garden of Eden has some elements that seem to resemble the sanctuary as well. So I think that this preoccupation of the dimensions, the structure, where is it geographically, get us away from the purpose of that sanctuary, which was to demonstrate the relationship and what is God trying to do with us all of the time. And if we say that the temple of the sanctuary is wherever Jesus is, and we say that Jesus is in heaven, he also told his disciples, I will be with you always until the end of time and they were here in earth and he was up in heaven so that'll be a contradiction so i think that the whole idea of the sanctuary and trying to resemble this into a physical structure just becomes an obstacle for us to really see what's the purpose as the saying says the trees do not let us see the forest and I don't want anyone to think that Henry and I are suggesting there is definitely no building in heaven. We don't know, ultimately. It could be. But that does not seem to be the primary purpose of the earthly sanctuary. It's just to say, well, there's a structure up there with these dimensions. No, it's something much, much deeper and bigger than that. Yeah, Livius. Well, let me maybe say that for sure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. You be the judge. 
But in Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 5, it says, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So let's take these words, copy, shadow, and pattern. When you're looking at a shadow, you don't necessarily know the color. You don't really know the shape. You don't know how tall the object that's casting the shadow is. There's lots of things you don't see in a shadow. You kind of just see a profile. And then a pattern. My mom is a seamstress and she makes dresses and clothes and all kinds of stuff. And when I watch her make something, she has this thin little paper pattern that she pins down and cuts shapes out of it. And when you're looking at the patterns, you don't necessarily know how big the dress is, how the fit is, all kinds of things about the final product you don't really know. So I'm kind of in agreement that we don't really, if we assign, like Henry was saying, and you were saying, if we assign a physical building, a physical structure, I think we kind of will get lost in what it's trying to say. Yeah. And Richard Davidson, a former colleague of mine, when I was at the seminary, has probably done as much study on this topic as anyone that I'm aware of. And he says that what Moses seems to have seen on the mountain was a model in miniature, a miniature model of what God wanted him to build on the earth. It isn't saying that he saw the heavenly sanctuary. It's saying he saw a pattern, a model that God wanted him to follow. And what makes it interesting is that the Hebrew sanctuary looks so much like ancient temples that are older than it in Israel, in Turkey, in Mesopotamia, etc. So it seems that to some degree, at least, the heavenly sanctuary is modeled after earthly models, not just a heavenly one, that God is giving a structure that makes sense to them in their time and place. Larry? If we, in trying to understand all of the things we're looking at and how all of this possibly could relate to judgment, can we re- use the word responsibility in place of judgment for the things that we're going to be talking about. If we think of judgment as somehow having to do with our and God's responsibility or behaving responsible, does that help in this kind of discussion? Mm -hmm. I think that possibly could, and perhaps a full response awaits some things we're going to bring in the conclusion of this session. So thank you very much for that. I'd like Terry to read Daniel 8, 17 and 19, and this is related to part two of your handout. What period of time does the 2300 days lead up to? So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I became frightened and fell prostrate. But he said to me, Understand, O mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. He said, Listen, and I will tell you what will take place later in the period of wrath, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. All right, so both of these texts say this vision of the 2300 days is not about Daniel's time, but it's about the time of the end. And you remember in verse 26, it says, It's far future, distant future. So I think what's clear here is that. The 2300 days, whatever they mean, it's not a literal period in Daniel's immediate future. I think the best scholarly explanation of Daniel 8 isn't about something in Daniel's time frame, something in the second century or whatever, but it's rather talking about way, way down 
at the close of time, at the time of the end. That's what this vision is all about. So a time frame has been set up. It doesn't tell us when it begins, but Daniel 8 does tell us when it ends. It'll end when the sanctuary, whatever that means, is cleansed, is set right, is rightified. I think uh, someone once translated the, the Hebrew term nitzdak. So we're going a step at a time here, but trying to understand some things that have proven very challenging through the years. In fact, the Seventh-day Adventist Church had a committee that met from 1981 to 1985 just basically to study the book of Daniel. And so there's some heavy stuff in here that we're going to try to work through at a more practical level. Number three in your handout says, read Daniel 9.23. What instruction does the angel give to Daniel that helps us understand the timing of the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8.14? Daniel 9 and verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went out, and I have come to declare it, for you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. All right, so it says, understand the vision. The vision is not fully explained in Daniel 8. This, particularly the time element is not explained. But here's a piece. We have to get into the weeds just a little bit here. All right. Because there's two different words for vision in Daniel 8 and in Daniel 9, and it makes a huge difference. All right, so Terry, if you would, just step back to Daniel 8 and read verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. Then someone appeared standing before me, having the appearance of a man. All right, verse 16. And I heard a human voice by the Uli calling, Gabriel, help this man understand the vision. And then verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I became frightened and fell prostrate. But he said to me, understand, O mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. All right. So three times here we've heard the word vision, and it's important enough that God sent Gabriel to explain the vision to Daniel. Now, it's the vision of Daniel 8. It's the vision of a ram and a goat and a horn and four horns and a little horn in the sanctuary in heaven, etc. All of that is part of the vision. And the word for vision in Hebrew there is chatzon, chatzon. And that seems to be referring pretty much to the vision as a whole but particularly the parts about the goat and the ram and so forth. But Terry, uh, take us to verse 26. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. As for you, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. All right, so here it says the vision of the evenings and mornings. Here's the interesting piece. It's not the same word. It's the word mare, something you see. So the vision in verses 15 to 17 is chatzon. The vision in 26 is mare. Apparently, Gabriel has separated this time period out from the larger vision. In verses 15 to 17, Daniel is told, Gabriel's going to explain the vision to you. 
He talks about the ram. He talks about the goat. He talks about the prominent horn. He talks about the four winds and all the rest of that. So the animal part of the vision is what the rest of chapter 8 is all about. In verse 26, the angel comes to talk about the evenings and the mornings, verse 14, and he changes the word, the mare. In other words, within the larger vision, there's a mare, which is about the evenings and mornings. Keep that in mind. Come back to Daniel 9, 23, because when Gabriel returns now to continue his explanation of the vision, notice what it says. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. What do you think? Is it the chatzon or is it the mare? Would be uh, the great question at this point. And the answer is, it's the mare. Gabriel hasn't come back to talk about the gram and the goat and the horns. He's come back to talk about the 2,300. So Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is all about the 2,300 days. And it gives, as we will see, the starting point of the vision. And we will go more deeply into that right away. So in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, the angel has come to give an explanation of the vision of the 2,300, not the whole vision of Daniel 8. That's already been explained in chapter 8. But the time reference has not been explained except to say that it's a long time in the future. It isn't Daniel's immediate future. All right, so let's go to verse 24 of Daniel 9. And I'm sorry for talking a lot here, but there's a lot of intense biblical stuff in the lesson and feel free to speak to it to the degree that you have studied these things before and share your insight. I'm sure it will be helpful, but we're going to kind of have to just look at the text hard and see where it takes us. Chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. All right. What I want you all to do is to think about the last part of verse 24. What is all that talking about? Finishing transgression and sin, atoning for iniquity. What is supposed to happen toward the end of the 70 weeks? Be thinking about that. But first of all, there's one other piece here that we need to stop on just for a sec. It says 70 weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city. So there's a period of 70 weeks. And once again, the question is, is that 70 weeks like a year and a half? Or is it some vaster period like the 2300 days was? It says the 70 weeks are cut off concerning the Jewish people. That word cut off, hatak, in the Hebrew means decreed, ordained, cut off, set apart. So the 70 weeks are set apart from what? The 2,300. So the 70 weeks are part of the 2,300. It is part of the explanation of what the 2,300 are all about. And I think we will conclude that it actually sets the beginning point of that period. But before we get into that, what's happening at the end of these 70 weeks? 
Can anybody tell us based on verse 24? What do you see in verse 24 that might be of interest to us? It says, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy. What's going on there? These are difficult texts, but it must mean something. And in practical terms, what can we do with that? Livius. Okay, this is a wild idea. So I'm going to concentrate on to anoint a most holy place. When we anoint, we use oil, right? Um, So could it be that what we are doing is we are anointing ourselves, we're allowing the Holy Spirit come into our most holy place, our minds? Okay, so is this anointing, in the Old Testament, anointing happened to kings, it happened to priests, anything else? So Livius is suggesting perhaps this anointing refers to something that's going to happen to us. I would say that's certainly true with finishing transgression and sin and atoning for iniquity. That would seem to have some reference to us. Larry? Somehow or another, this whole issue that has been going on, and we have no idea how long before our creation it was going on, this angel is now talking about this whole issue is going to get resolved in some fashion, there will be a resolution to it. Is that possible? So looking at the larger picture, certainly in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, there's reference to the heavenly sanctuary, that the little horn reaches up into heaven to the place of God's sanctuary. So a heavenly meaning to this is definitely possible. And it's interesting that it's saying that whatever this is, is going to happen at the end of the 70 weeks, but that's only a part of a much larger period. So I think maybe we have a hint here of what the New Testament talks about as two ages, or the now and the not yet, because the Jews certainly expected that the end of these 70 weeks, it would all be over, but it didn't happen. And so now we have a tension between the end that happened in Jesus and the end that is yet to come at his return. Livius, you wanted to come back on that? I was just taken for a flash, just going back to anoint a most holy place. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of Revelation chapter 7, where the angels are holding back the four winds, specifically to wait for the servants of our God to be sealed. I was reading the whole section, the whole section, and the section ends until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And it's almost like a bullet-pointed historical summary in, I don't know how to describe it, but it's kind of like it goes all the way to the end, maybe. I don't know if, if that's a right connection, but that's what I was thinking specifically for that, to anoint a most holy place. Okay. By the way, that's probably the most controversial part verse 24, (laughs) because people are saying, is it a holy place? It basically says in the Hebrew, anointing the holy of holies. Is that a place? Is it a person? The New Testament talks about Jesus' baptism as an anointing. Is that what that's referring to? Or as some of you are suggesting, is it the anointing of believers because of the gospel? All right, Aaron. I was just doing a quick search, and most of the verses on anointing are speaking of oil, but wasn't blood used as well? Blood has certainly at times been put on priests, etc. I'm not aware that the term anointing is used with that. Anointing, I think, is generally with oil, but I don't have that on the tip of my tongue. When the word anointing appears in the Bible, is there ever a time when it's associated with blood? I don't know. I don't think so, but I can't rule that out for sure. Thank you for raising the possibility. 
Henry. I would like to touch in another element of that verse 24. It does 77 weeks that are decreed for the people to finish transgression, to put an end to sin. It is evident that we continue to see sin today. We continue to see wickedness today. So it has to refer to something different that needed to happen that was not necessarily stopped sinning, but probably the consequences of sin. We understand sin to be as an attitude of rebelliousness. We find in Colossians 1.20, including 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things on heaven, which is repeated almost similar in Ephesians 1.10. So is that what the meaning of that finishing with transgression and to put an end to sin? Because as I was saying, sin continues to be, but what was the origin of that sin was clarified at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, generally when the Old Testament speaks about the end, it's speaking about a singular event in which all these things will happen. And verse 24 kind of seems to do that same thing. On the other hand, if the 70 weeks is only a piece of a much larger period, then it's a hint at least already within the Old Testament that the end, or at least part of the end, will not signal the full end. And the New Testament, of course, expands that into the two comings of Christ, both the one that's behind us and the one that's before us. Michael? Could the anointing be referring to the baptism of Jesus at the River Jordan by John, who, who was his cousin? Behold the Lamb of God. Acts 10.38 speaks of Jesus being anointed at his baptism. So yes, you're absolutely right. The New Testament is open to the possibility that the anointing the most holy is referring to Jesus. I personally don't think so. And again, this is controversial to some degree. It's even being studied right now at the highest levels of the Adventist church. There's a debate back and forth on this. But it seems to me that the whole focus of chapter 8 has been on the sanctuary. And so when you have holy of holies, it would seem to have something to do with the sanctuary. More specifically, of course, you can say Jesus is the sanctuary. So that's why it's debated. Okay. And uh, good observation. Sean. Yes, thank you. Does the use of the word vision in uh, verse 24 help to confirm this two-part time period? And which term is used? Which of the Hebrew words is used for vision? in that verse as one of the results of the 70 weeks oh seal up vision and prophecy yes to seal up the uh -huh. vision and prophecy and i'm just wondering if that is somewhat of a confirmation or a way that we determine that there are two phases time phases of this vision that daniel has been revealed the large one that waylaid him into thinking oh boy this isn't going to be resolved in my lifetime. And then the one, the shorter portion of this vision, the 70 weeks. So I'm just wondering what the word is there. And if that isn't itself a confirmation of this two-part time period. Interesting. You really piqued my curiosity there. So I was able to look it up while you were speaking and it's Hatzon here. So it's referring to the larger vision, but that doesn't help us, does it? Because we were saying, well, if it's anointing the most holy is about this more immediate situation, the 70 weeks, that something happens with the larger vision. And let me just say this so we don't get too deep in the weeds. 
Let's not try to figure out every detail here today. But here's the thing I would get from those six things in verse 24. It's the decisive event of salvation that's in view. Whether it's the end or not is a different story. We'll have more to say about that as we work through. But it's the decisive event of salvation. And all of these terms together, what else could there possibly be? So something's going to happen toward the end of the 70 weeks that is so decisive that things are never quite the same again. Nothing that much we can say without trying to define in detail some of these pieces that we've struggled with. Okay, Aaron? Verse 24, talking about anointing the most holy, that's Jesus, right? And Well, that's where the controversy is. Some would okay. say that's the well, uh, inauguration of the heavenly sanctuary, which is I don't think a, a major element in Hebrews, <laughs> but uh, others are suggesting that it's the baptism of Jesus that's referred to. Here. Okay. Just quickly to that point, if the question you're asking, what did anointing the Holy of Holies mean to Daniel? I think the answer has to be it's connected with the sanctuary of 814. Whatever that is, it's referring to the same thing. If you ask the question, what did the New Testament understand anointing the Holy? I think they would say Jesus. All right, so that's a fine distinction. I think you're speaking, Aaron, from a New Testament perspective, which I certainly endorse that one should do that. My question was simply, and that's where the debate came up, is that Daniel? So when Daniel wrote that down, would that be what he understands? And I think that's a hard sell. I think Daniel's referring to sanctuary in the Old Testament sense, which would be the earthly combined with perhaps the heavenly. But the New Testament would see sanctuary expanded in the light of Jesus, who hadn't come yet when Daniel was written. So time affects the way we read scripture sometimes. And I think that's pertinent here. So the purest exegete, like I sometimes am, would say, no, 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 Daniel would not have seen that as anointing a person. You don't have that context to say that. But the New Testament clearly saw Jesus anointing as Messiah in his baptism. And Daniel 9 gets to that in the next verse. You see, so we don't have to see verse 24 as a person to say that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. So let's get to verse 25. Terry, if you would read that for us. Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. All right. So that's an interesting translation. I'm not sure I like it too much. Let me see what the NIV says. Seventy weeks are decreed. Verse 25, no one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. There will be seven weeks and 72 weeks. All right, I think that's a little closer to how most translations read it. In other words, there is a period of time within the 70 weeks, there's 7 and 62, and from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, until the anointed one, and here it's a person in Daniel. He could have said that in verse 24, but he doesn't. That's why I draw a distinction there. The anointed one is at the end of 69 weeks. And what is the beginning? Uh, the beginning is from the decree to restore and to build Jerusalem. All right. So when did that decree happen? 
And here we're dependent somewhat on historians as well as the Bible. But let's go to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra, just before Nehemiah, Ezra 7. And there's three verses there that I think are helpful here. When did the decree happen to rebuild Jerusalem? Chapter 7, verse 7. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants also went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. All right, so this chapter is about the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He's a known king from the ancient world. He was the king of the Persian Empire in the mid-fifth century B.C., And we know, or at least calculate, that the beginning of his reign was 464 B.C. His seventh year then would be what year? 457, right? Just doing the math. So seventh year of Artaxerxes would be uh, the year 457 B.C. Now notice what happens in that year. Verse 13. I decree that any of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. All right. And that decree comes from Artaxerxes, according to verse 12. Artaxerxes to Ezra, the priest, says that anybody in the empire wants to go to Jerusalem can go. In verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All right. So in Ezra chapter 7, there's a decree to go back and restore Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem had been in the hands of the Jews for some 75, 80 years, but it had never been completed. And now comes a decree to complete it. It still wasn't completed until Nehemiah comes along around 444, 13 years later. He laments to the king, you know, this decree that you made never got finished. And Artaxerxes says, what should we do about it? Nehemiah says, I'll go. If you'll give me authority, I will go and I will see that it happens. And so he finally completes the task in 444. But what Daniel 9 is saying is from the time of the decree, to Messiah the Prince. The decree is 457 BC. If these weeks are weeks of years, as I think is likely, because in chapter 10, Daniel talks about weeks of days. So that is in contrast to the weeks of Daniel 9. So it seems to be weeks of years. If you go seven weeks and 62, that's 69 weeks times seven. Tough calculation there but I'll make it easy for you. 70 times seven is 490, right? Subtract seven, one week, and you come up with 483. So you take 483 years from the time of Artaxerxes to the coming of Messiah. And what year do you get? 27 AD. When was Jesus baptized? He was baptized in the fall of 27 AD. How do we know that? It was the 15th year of Tiberius who began his reign in 12 AD. He co-reigned with Augustus for a couple of years in Augustus' old age. And so his 15th year would have been 27 AD. So Jesus was baptized at exactly the point when Messiah was expected. And by the way, the Jews were talking about it. They were expecting Messiah around 2530 AD because of Daniel 9. Messiah was expected. So Jesus didn't come as a surprise in that sense. Messiah was expected at that point in time. But here's the exciting piece. The longest prophecy in the Bible that is fulfilled within the Bible is Daniel 
chapter 9. So Adventists tend to get excited about this passage because it seems to confirm that Bible prophecy is really valid, that there is a genuine voice of God, there's a genuine predictive element, and that prophecy can be relied on, I think is an important piece that comes from this. All right, number six. Sorry to do so much talking, but there is so much in this lesson, I'm not sure how one would do it justice without quite a bit of detailed study. And I left out a lot of things. Trust me on that. Daniel 9.26, question just came in the chat. What writings would confirm that the Jews were looking for the Messiah at that time? There was a rabbi named Abba Hillel Silver, and he wrote a book about messianic expectations in that first century. I don't remember the title of the book, but it's something to do with messianic expectations, and you can look that one up. But he wrote about what the Jews were anticipating around the first century, as we call it. All right, verse 26 of chapter 9. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. All right, so at the end of the 62 weeks, which would be the year 27, it says there, after that time, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. That seems to be saying he gains nothing for himself. Christians have always looked at that as being a reference to the cross of Christ that within that 70th week, Jesus dies on the cross. And it even gets more detailed in verse 27. After his death, what happens next? That seems to be a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Messiah will come after 69 weeks. After 69 weeks, he will be cut off. He will die, but not for his own benefit. He will die for the benefit of others. And then comes the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 27. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall make sacrifice and offering cease. And in their place shall be an abomination that desolates until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. All right, so the first half of verse 27 seems to be giving the time of the Messiah's death, which would be in the midst of the week. And Adventists have understood that to be 31 AD. The one historical problem is we're not certain exactly when Jesus died. That date is not given. You know, it doesn't say like in the 18th year of Tiberius or something like that. So uh, people have noticed that there seem to be four Passovers in the Gospel of John, which would mean Jesus' ministry was three full years and parts of a fourth year. And so the midst of the week then would go from the fall of 27 to the spring of 31, which is when Adventists date the crucifixion. There's not scholarly agreement on exactly what date Jesus was crucified, but that's the date you come up with from Daniel 9. Larry. Observation on Daniel 9, 25, 6, and 7. In the Robert Alter commentary and translation, he uses an interesting phrase, and it says, And the anointed one shall be cut off with none to save him. And that phrase 
was used by all of the people who taunted Christ on the cross that, okay, if you really are, then nobody's going to save you, all the things. So, and that's the only version I found where it uses that phrase, which was later repeated almost verbatim in the New Testament. So I just wanted to share that. Love that connection, Larry. Appreciate that very much. I think there's a strong point in all of that. Let's go to number seven. And we'll probably conclude with this as we're getting near the end of our time. But it says there, read Daniel 8, 3 to 13. We won't try to do that in the short time. But it says, what language is there in these verses that set the stage for a reference to the sanctuary? Here's a big picture piece. In chapter 7, the nations of the world are depicted as animals. What kind of animals? You have a lion, a bear, a leopard, and another carnivorous animal that no one can even describe. So you have carnivorous animals, and they are unclean animals. In chapter 8, the nations of the world are depicted by farm animals, the ram, the goat, etc. These are not carnivorous animals. And perhaps even more important, they are sanctuary animals. So you shifted from the Aramaic language in chapter 7 to the Hebrew language in chapter 8. You've shifted from unclean animals to clean animals. You've shifted from carnivorous animals to grass-eating, greens-eating animals. So there's a significant shift when you go to chapter 8, and that suggests that the sanctuary there at the end is where things are all pointing to. They're sanctuary animals, and it's a sanctuary that would be cleansed. In chapter 7, God is speaking to the nations. It's a vision that comes in the Aramaic language, the language of Babylon. In chapter 8, God is speaking to the Hebrew people only. To the kings of Babylon, what is the climax of the vision? It's the judgment. To the people of Israel, the climax of the vision is the restoring of the sanctuary. So those two ideas are drawn together. And I think that ties a very important past Adventist insight with the conclusion we want to come to today. Larry? If it can be truly stated that the idea of judgment and accountability can be interchangeably used, and our understanding of the hour of God's judgment and when does the judgment begin. So, and I find it interesting when they talk about when does all of this begin. What I don't find ever referenced is a period of time when it truly actually ends. So, can it be said that there really is never going to be an end at a time when our understanding of judgment, of accountability ever comes to an end, that that is just how the universe operates and from whatever period of time in the future when things move forward beyond the second coming, that this judgment idea and accountability is always going to be with us? Is that reasonable to presume that? So you're suggesting that the cleansing of the sanctuary is not a point in time, but a process. And if that's what you're suggesting... I'm uh, suggesting that it is the beginning of a process that does go on. And uh, yes. Absolutely. I think that's sound judgment. Arthur. I just want to appreciate the lesson, especially the way in which we are looking at this subject in a very broad sense. I think this is more of a reflection anyway, particularly important for us, maybe as Seventh-day Adventists, to go back to the sanctuary message, 
to see whether there are any new insights that we could discover with regards to the real meaning of what the sanctuary is. More so because this message should not only make sense to ourselves, but it should make sense even to any other Christian who has interest in whatever we're presenting. So it would be very interesting, especially with probably our fascination with the exactness of the building material, if you please, or the exact dimensions of a physical place in heaven, if you will, or with regards to the exact dates, 1844 being particularly an important date to us. But I think there are even much larger issues of interest. For me personally, I always find, I think Larry has been pointing to what I'm also interested in, uh, trying to weave into this discussion the great controversy motive, which uh, I'm persuaded to think Daniel and the rest of the prophets hinted to it in one way or the other, because it makes it a bit broader to say maybe this sanctuary is the hearts and minds of all God's angelic hosts and human beings or any other beings. Maybe God was saying that there will come a time when all these issues will be resolved, when God's character will be vindicated, uh, because I think it's Paul who also hints that may God become just when he is judged. So we always focus on ourselves as us being the ones being judged and the books are being opened, all of our past sins are being taken into account and all that. But also God is also being judged uh, during this period. So maybe we are saying this is a time when a lot of information about who God really is will, will surface, then everyone else uh, on earth as well as in the universe, maybe for the last time, maybe, will have a, a final analysis of who God is. Thank you very much. Well, Arthur, I think if we were grading this class, you would definitely be one of those who get the A-plus today because you have uh, beautifully set up the conclusion that I would like to present in the five minutes we have left. Let me just share this with everybody. If we had another hour, I'd love to toss the question out and let you bat it around because this group always comes to a good place with some serious discussion. But I've asked the question at the beginning and Larry was goading toward the answer, but I said, hold off just a sec. The question is, what is cleansed? If it's the New Testament sanctuary, what needs cleansing? And so you ask the question, is there a sanctuary in heaven? What in heaven needs cleansing? And I'm not suggesting that what I'm about to tell you covers all bases. There may be more to say, but I think at least it provides a glimpse of this larger picture that Arthur was talking about. What in heaven needs to be cleansed? I can think of two things. Number one is questions that may still linger in heavenly places regarding the character of God. And so what God does is begin a judgment, and we'll have more to say about this next week, but God introduces a judgment process in which he opens the books. God opens the books so the heavenly universe can examine everything that he has said and done in the context of the cosmic conflict. God's government is not secretive. God's government is open and allows his creatures to examine what God has done, as Arthur said, that God himself is judged. So one aspect of what needs to be cleansed in heaven is any questions that may linger regarding the character of God and how he has carried out the cosmic conflict. A second thing that needs to be cleansed in heaven is in the minds of the unfallen beings who may be concerned that the neighborhood will go bad when you and I show up. 
After all, we're asking a lot of people who have never sinned to take the universe's convicts, put them on buses, and spread them around as illegal immigrants all over the universe. I'm being facetious here, but in a sense, from their perspective, that's what's happening. A whole race of people that's caused nothing but trouble is now going to be scattered throughout the universe, and the rest of you are going to have to deal with this. They want to know who is coming into the neighborhood and whether it'll be safe. And so God allows open books regarding us as well. So the unfallen beings of the universe can be satisfied. The neighborhood won't go when we show up. Second question, if the sanctuary is the church, what in the church needs to be cleansed? And I would answer doctrines that make God look bad, doctrines that have undermined the character of God, like everlasting burning hell, legalism, perfectionism things like that, that have made God seem exacting, judgmental, etc. Those doctrines are found in many places within the Christian church. So God is inviting a cleansing of the church sanctuary from false doctrines. But along with that are administrative systems that do not comport with the government of God. God is an open book. God allows all to examine what he has done. God invites the church to be open in the same way, that the church be subject to accountability, just as heaven is. So the church also needs cleansing. Comes back to the body. What about the body temple needs cleansing? And I have two suggestions. And as I said, this is not the whole, this is simply the part. But one of these would be the health message. If our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then we don't want to have a lot of tobacco smoke in that temple. You can almost hear the Holy Spirit coughing, <laughs> you know, trying to make his way through the haze to actually get through to us, etc. I'm joking a bit there. But the health message that the temple would be the best that it can be, that our minds would be as sharp as they can be. It seems to me that the Adventist health message is relevant to this time in history for that reason. And then finally, the question of end-time perfection comes in here. Is there something God is looking for in his people? Is there going to be a level of commitment perhaps never before seen? And I'm thinking of chapter 14 of Conversations About God that acknowledges that there is some truth in that concept. It is often distorted into an absolute legalistic perfectionism, which is not helpful. But at the same time, is not God looking for relationship at a deeper level of the stages of faith than ever before, and that that is part of the cleansing of the body temple. It seems to me that this whole concept of the cleansing of the temple can be very powerful and really big when we see it in this capacity. So thank you for indulging me in those concluding remarks, and we'll close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for a challenging lesson. You put these texts in the Bible, so we just can't ignore them. It would be nice to just ignore sometimes texts that are as difficult as these. But we have found that when we dig deep into it, there's often gold at the end of the rainbow. And we're grateful that you are present with us in this conversation. You stretched our minds and given us understanding to at least a degree, and we crave all the more in the future. And we invite your presence in that journey for Jesus' sake. Amen.